You're listening to audio from Calvary Baptist Church of Port Austin. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about us, please visit cbcportaustin.org. We are still in the beginning months of 2019, but I want to ask, how many of you already in 2019 have had a bad day? Anybody not? I should probably ask, has anyone not had a bad day? So we've all had bad days. For me, you know, when, when kids on the school bus are crazier than a hornet's nest, um, that's, that's one of those days where, you know, you kind of wish things weren't quite the way that they were. So everyone has bad days, but then there's a step above bad days. There's days we would call terrible days or traumatic days. I think of the day that I was in a car accident or then the day that my mom passed away when I was 10. Those would be terrible days. Those would be sa- very sad, unfortunate, terrible thing that happened. And so people have bad days, but not only people, also nations. I think about our nation, America. 9-11 comes to mind. Pearl Harbor comes to mind. Two terrible days in the history of our nation. Days that, that could not have gone better. Tragic events have happened. And even beyond people and nations, just think about days that have changed the course of history. Days that have affected everyone. Like the day that Hitler invaded Poland, beginning World War II. Think of the millions that died from that. Or the day the first person was infected with the Spanish flu, which wiped out countless people in Europe. Or the day that God destroyed the world with a flood, leaving only Noah and his family alive. These were all days we would say these were terrible days. These were awful days in the history of humanity. But I want to preach to you today on what I consider to be the worst day in history. Now, you might disagree and say, well, I don't know if this particular day is the worst day. And it may not be. I might be exaggerating. But definitely at least top three. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Most of us, at least those of us that have grown up in church, are aware of the background of this story. God has just finished creating everything that we see. And he's looked at it all and he said, it is very good. And then he's created Adam and he's created Eve. And he's placed them on this earth in a garden with a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gives them one thing that he tells them not to do. He says, do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. For in the day that you eat thereof, Ye shall surely die. In Genesis chapter 3, we pick up that story. In chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took up the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, And he did eat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truths of your word. And we thank you that you don't just tell us about the good things that happened in our history, but that you tell us about the bad as well. You tell us everything that we need to know to understand the position that we're in today. 
and to understand that the only hope that we have is you. Please be with me this morning as I preach. Lord, I pray that every heart would listen to your word, not just to me, but to your word and what you have to say. May we all be changed by your truth. Please fill me with your spirit. Lord, I need you. Please work in every heart. If anyone here tonight or today has not trusted you as Savior, please save them. We thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I want to look today, as I said, at the worst day ever. Let's take a look at what happened on this day. What made it so terrible. First of all, we see the perpetrator of sin. All of this day is the day that sin entered humanity which completely messed up everything. A lot of people who are atheists will look at Christianity and say, well, how can you believe in a God if there's so much evil, if there's so much wrong in this world? And the answer to that is God is not the person who produced evil. God is not the person who directly produced all of the sorrows we see. All of the things that are wrong and broken with this world are because of mankind sinning and rebelling against God. That is why things are broken. That is why things are messed up. That is not God's fault. And God has a plan to fix it all. But I'm going to save that for the end of the message. I'm going to give you all the bad news before I give you the good news. So we see, first of all, the perpetrator of sin. Satan comes to the woman and he uses the serpent. In Revelation 12, it calls the devil Satan, the serpent, which deceiveth the whole world. If you're not familiar with the personhood of Satan, he was a perfect angel at one point. He was was an anointed cherub in heaven, and he was a part of the angel's job to worship God, but he chose to rebel against God. He chose instead to worship himself, and so he was judged for that. And now Satan has come, and he has turned his attention to destroy God's creation. He hates God, so he wants to mess up what God loves most. His creation. He wants to mess up what he has made. And why did he come as a serpent? Well, think about it. Adam and Eve were used to seeing animals in the garden every day. It was not uncommon for them to see serpents, to see whatever types of animals they had that were still around back then. Maybe some dinosaurs were there in the Garden of Eden. I don't know all the details. But they were used to seeing that. And in the same way, when Satan comes to tempt us... He's going to come to you through something that you're familiar with. Maybe he'll use a family member to tempt you to do things that are wrong. Maybe he'll use peer pressure. Maybe he'll use, he'll, he won't come to you with something that's completely foreign. He tries to find a way to get into your own personal life to get you to do what is wrong. And I want you to see the methods that Satan used here to trick Eve, to get her to sin. The very first thing he did was he put doubt in her mind. In verse 1, he asks her a question. He says, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. What is Satan doing here? He's trying to get Eve to question God's truth. He's trying to get Eve to doubt that what God said was true. And any time that he tries to tempt you to sin, it will be the same. He's trying to get you to doubt what God's word says. Do you really have to believe? Did God really say you couldn't do that? Like, really? Did God say that? Well, if it's in the Bible, yes. God did say that. And that settles it. We have to stand on God's truth to resist the temptation of Satan. So first of all, we see that he used doubt. But secondly, he used deceit. In verse 4, the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. He flat out calls God a liar. 
First, he just tried to get her. He tried to put a question mark in her head, but now he's just pulling out all the guns and saying, yeah, um, God lied to you. You're not going to die. Satan is trying to tell her that God is a liar, and he's mixing truth with error. He's denying the consequences. He's saying, God said this bad thing would happen to you, but that's not going to happen. Look at this good stuff that's going to happen to you instead. One of Satan's biggest lies is that he tries to make it look like God is holding out on us. Like God is holding something back that would be good for us. Or that he doesn't want us to have any fun. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not out to ruin people's lives by making them have all these dumb rules to follow. Look at what God did for Adam and Eve. He put them in a garden with all sorts of fruit. He gave them marriage. He gave them each other. He gave them a perfect world. Are you really going to say that God's holding out on them? But what is Satan doing? There's this one little thing over here that God said you couldn't have. So he's trying to get her to focus on that one thing when there's a whole garden around her full of trees that she could eat from. And in the same way, what do we do? God's given us our families, our friends, our church, food. And yet he tries to say, oh, but look at this one thing that God said you can't do. God's holding out on you. No, he's not. No, he's not. God loves you more than you could possibly know. Don't let Satan make you believe that garbage. That is a lie from hell. Psalm 34.10 says, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Or, excuse me, that's Psalm 84.11. And then in Psalm 34.10, it says, They that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Because we're not going to lack anything that's good for us. God gives us everything that is good. And if he keeps something from us, it's because he's protecting us. Not because he's trying to ruin our lives. And as I said before, this is one of Satan's best lies. How many of you have ever heard the saying, only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self? Any of you ever heard that before? Maybe one or two of you have? Now, in one sense, I agree with that statement. Because when you're tempted to sin, yes, it seems like there is a choice. But then, on another hand, that statement isn't true. Because it almost makes you think that you have to choose between pleasing God or pleasing yourself. I'm here to tell you today, I am trying to serve God with my life and there's nothing I would rather be doing right now. Like, yes, when I'm tempted to sin, I have to choose. No, not my flesh, not sin, I have to choose God. But as far as my life goes, I don't have to choose. I'm doing what I want to do because I want to honor and love God because he's changed my heart. He's saved me from my sins and he's giving me a new heart that wants to do what's right. So I'm here to tell you that you don't have to choose between having a miserable life and doing what's right or having fun and being in sin. I'm telling you that God wants you to be joyful and he wants you to have rest. He wants you to know him and that, yes, there are pleasures in sin for a season, but God protects us from that and he gives us far more in him. So I want to also give you this illustration to think about. P.T. Barnum of the world-famous Barnum Bailey Circus once said, The American people are here to be fooled, and I'm here to fool them. <laughs> Satan is the same way. He's out to fool people. He's out to trick people. He's out to deceive them. He has the whole world fooled, and he wants to fool you as well. Don't fall prey to his traps. Don't let him make you think that God is holding something good from you, because he's not. So we see that Satan has tempted the woman. We see the perpetrator of sin. But then secondly, we see the practice of sin. When we think about sin, we usually 
if we're not careful, we'll always think of sin as being, you know, these particular activities like getting drunk or murder or adultery. The really big bad things. That's what we associate with usually when we think of sin. And those are sins. I'm not advocating any of those. Please don't go out and do any of that. But sin is more than just bad things that we do. Sin is nothing more than rejecting God's way and then doing whatever you think will please you. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. See, sin is not just bad things you do. Sin is you saying, God's way is not best, so I will go my own way. Different from God's. And for some people, that does look like sinful actions. For other people, it might be good actions. Maybe there's someone who does a lot of good things, but their reason for doing it isn't because they love God. It's because they want other people to think well of them. Or they want you know, the praise of men, whatever it may be. If your actions are not being done out of a heart for God, then it's sin. It's not right. And that is how sin entered into Eve's life. She put her focus on pleasing herself apart from pleasing God. She said she disregarded God's way and chose her own. So that was the entrance of sin to our lives. But then notice the effects of sin. In verse 6, we see that she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. When, when you leave this morning, I want you to think of sin I want you to think horrible things about sin. And I want to give you a picture of sin that I, that I think really captures it well. Sin is like cancer. It's like a virus. It's like an infectious disease. And when Eve was infected with this, what was the very first thing that she did? She spread it to Adam. And another one of Satan's lies is, oh, you can sin and it won't affect anybody else as long as no one knows about it. Just keep it over here and don't tell anybody. That's also a lie. You might be able to hide the fact you're doing it from people, but it's going to change you. It's going to affect you. And it's going to affect people around you. And it will spread. It is like a virus, and it will harm those that are around you. Just like Eve ended up harming Adam by giving it to her, or to him. And then secondly, we see after they did that, verse 7, The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Sin brings shame. Look, they realize they were naked, so they try to cover themselves. They try to hide their shame. And sin, in the same way, makes us feel shame, makes us feel guilt. And we try to cover it up. We try to hide it. And then when God tries to come, we try to run from him. Instead, we were made to fellowship with God. But sin makes us run because we're afraid. Because we've broken his law. We have disobeyed him. I mean, look at Jonah. Jonah did the same thing. God gives him a job. Go preach to Nineveh. What does he do? He turns around and says, I'm going to go the other way. He tried to run from God. Now, God knows that we've sinned, and we can't hide that fact. Adam and Eve, it's almost like they thought that they could trick God, you know, and, and try to hide the fact that they had done something wrong. You can't trick God. The Proverbs 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. 
I used to be an only child before my brother Weston showed up and ruined my life. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't ruin my life. But before Weston showed up, I was an only child. So if something was broken in the house and mommy knew that she didn't do it and daddy knew that he didn't do it, there was only one other person that could be at fault. And I could deny it, but I couldn't deny it because I was the only person because I couldn't say leprechauns came in and did it because they wouldn't believe me even though that really did happen. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. So, so, but in the same way, see, God is like... He is the parent who knows everything. He knows what we've done. We can't hide it from him, and yet we trick ourselves to thinking that we can. And if we can't hide it, we'll go on to the next step. Look at verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And here we go. Look at this. The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. See, men have been blaming women for their problems for all these years, but it's their own fault. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, but in all seriousness, what is Adam doing? He is making excuses for his sin. He's saying, Well, it's not my fault. Like, she gave me the, she, she forced the fruit down my mouth. Like, I didn't have any say in the matter. She gave it to me. And I ate, so it's. And then he even blamed God. He said, "The woman that you gave me, it's your fault. No, it's not God's fault. It's Adam's fault." But he's trying to shift the blame because he feels that guilt. He feels that shame. He realizes that he's done wrong, and he's trying to justify himself because he knows that he's in the wrong. And when Adam and Eve did this. Sin entered the human race. The Bible says by one man, sin entered into the world. So now, all of us are sinners. We are all in the same boat with Adam and Eve. None of us is without sin. We've all lied. We've all disobeyed our parents. We've all lived selfish lives, focusing on ourselves instead of God. And so we are all guilty before him. Which brings us to our third point. We've seen the perpetrator of sin. We've seen the, the uh, entrance of sin. And then we've seen the punishment for sin. In verse number 15, or verse 14, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now what's happening here? God is now pronouncing judgment on the serpent. What Satan has just done, God is angry with what he's done, and there is a punishment for it. And God has just promised that a seed or offspring of the woman is going to come and bruise his head. In other words, he will be defeated. That is the judgment that God pronounces on Satan. And then we see that there was a punishment for mankind. And from verse 16 down to verse 19 we see what the consequences or the punishment for sin was. Before we read that, I want you to think. In Numbers 32, 23, it says, Be sure your sin will find you out. One of the other lies, remember the lie that Satan did? He told Adam and Eve, Ye shall not surely die. He said, There won't be consequences. What's happening? Right away, there's consequences. Now, for us, the consequences might not come right away. At least we may not feel them. We may not recognize them. But know for sure that there are consequences for sin. There always have been and there always will be. But once again, sin is like a cancer. You don't notice it right away. 
until often it's done so much damage that it's irreversible. One physician was once asked that if he could make one wish for mankind's health and it become true, he said, I would make cancer begin with excruciating pain. Thus, it could be detected and removed before it does its lethal work. In the same way, sin is like that cancer. You don't notice it until it's almost too late. And so Adam and Eve, they did not notice the danger of sin until they had already given in. And God comes to the woman in verse 16. And he says, read, read this with me because I want you to notice. It doesn't say unto the woman, he said, apologize and it'll all be fine. No, God didn't just say, oh, you know, it just, you just messed up. You know, just, just, just say you're sorry and we'll move on with it. No, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Why is God so, why does it seem like God is being so, why is he making all these consequences? Why is he punishing them? Well, the reason why is because God is holy. God is morally perfect, and he has to uphold his law. He upholds what is right because that is his standard, because that is who he is. He can't be any less than that. One person said, God is holy. God hates sin. His holiness and hatred of sin, like every one of his attributes, is living and active and must manifest itself. His holy wrath at sin must strike. So when God sees this sin, his justice, his holiness comes and he pronounces a punishment. He says there will be sorrow and, and there will be multiplied conception. There will be sorrow in bringing forth of children. And God did this because he hates sin. Think about the entire Bible. This is why God destroyed the entire human race with a flood. This is why God killed 14,700 murmuring Israelites on one instance. And then another time he killed 24,000 Israelites for idolatry. This is why David's first baby with Bathsheba died. This is why countless animals were slaughtered in the Old Testament. And this is why God created a place called hell and sends everyone who dies without Jesus Christ there for all eternity because God hates sin. And he will not tolerate it. And yet, look at our lives. We become so used to it. We say, oh, it's just a little white lie. Oh, it's just a little sin. God doesn't see sin that way. He sees every sin as an attack on his right to rule, as an attack on his holiness and his justice, and he can't have that. Romans 12, 9 tells us to abhor that which is evil and to cleave to that which is good. In Psalm 97, 10, it says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. And in Proverbs 8, 13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy in the evil way do I hate. We need to stop looking at sin as just a little problem and we need to have the same attitude toward it that God has. We need to hate it with everything inside of us. We need to despise it. We need to get rid of that calloused attitude. And like I said before, Jesus, God said that sorrow would come. Sin is the reason why there's sorrow in this world. Sin is what brought sorrow here. There, was no, there were no tears before Adam and Eve sinned. There was no sorrow, but now that sin has come, sorrow has come with it. You cannot have sin without sorrow because they both go hand in hand. And then notice at the end of verse 16, God says, Thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. God is talking about now there's going to be conflict in marriage. There's going to be a arguing over who gets, to, who gets what, who's, who's in charge. There will be that, that fighting, that arguing. And I've said this before, but sin damages relationships. 
It destroys friendships. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. Why would we give it any place in our lives? Knowing how catastrophic it can be. Just think about the people whose lives have been ruined by sin. The marriages that have fallen apart. The friendships that are no more. All of that is a result of sin. So we see the punishment for the serpent, the punishment for the woman. Then we see the punishment for man. In verse 17, Unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow, there's that sorrow again, shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So now the ground has been cursed. Now all of creation has been cursed. Verse 18, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Roses did not have thorns in the Garden of Eden. Now they do. Now there are thorns, now there are thistles, now there are weeds, now there are those things that are fighting against man's working to provide for himself. Work is no longer enjoyable. Verse 19, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So now we see here that work is not enjoyable. Now there's sweat involved in work. And then death. You're dust and you're going back to dust. A popular line. And then we see in the end of chapter 3, if we continue reading, we won't for time's sake, but God tells them they have to leave the garden. He sends them out of that, that, that wonderful garden that he made for them. They can't have it anymore. Talk about sin having consequences. They picked one little tree that they weren't allowed to have over all of the other trees. And now they lost all of them. And they can't have any of them anymore. They're kicked out and God said to guard an angel to guard the way so that they can never get back in to eat the tree of life so that man would not live forever in his sinful state. Now, maybe you agree with me and say, yeah, this sounds like a pretty bad day. <laughs> this, is, this is arguably the worst day ever. But I'm not going to end there because I've still got an hour and a half left according to that clock. <laughs> but, but don't worry. No, I know. Time is short. I, won't keep, I know we forgot to set it back, well, but I won't keep you for an hour and five minutes. Uh, but I can't stop here because there is hope. In all the verses that we just read, there are two verses that give us a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Even on this day, the worst day in history, God gives men hope. He promises that there will come of the woman's seed or of the woman's offspring a person who will bruise the serpent's head. In other words, they will defeat Satan. Satan has declared war on God, and he has just got Adam and Eve to fall into sin. But God is assuring Satan, you will lose. You will lose. I will win. And we see this promise fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan nibbled at Jesus' heel. But when, Satan, when God got up three days later, he crushed Satan's head. Satan lost. God wins. Death is defeated. Sin is conquered. Jesus reigns. His kingdom is coming. And it can't be stopped by Satan or anybody else. He's God and he's in charge. And I'm so glad that he won. He is coming. He is going to rule. He rules now and he will reign forever. And he has taken care of man's biggest problem. The problem of sin. 
John said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, it says, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus has answered your biggest problems, sin and death. He died on the cross to take away your sins, and then he rose again to conquer death forever. If you belong to Christ, you don't have to fear death. If you belong to Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You belong to him, and you have his power inside of you. So don't live thinking, I can't help this sin. It's just the way I am. No, it's not. You're a child of God. Live with the power that he's given But if you're here this morning and you say, I don't have that power, I don't know Jesus, well, listen, there's hope for you. Just like there's hope for me. There's hope for all of humanity, for all who will realize that we are in that same boat as Adam and Eve, that we've sinned, that we've broken God's law, that we deserve his punishment. But he sent his son to save us. And he died on the cross and he rose again three days later. And if you will come to him and you'll repent and trust in what he did for you and place all your faith in him, He'll wash away your sins. He'll give you a home in heaven and he will bring you into his family where you will be forever loved and forever accepted. And remember how in verses 7 and 8, they made those fig leaves they made they, to cover their shame because they felt guilty? Well, look at verse 21. Unto Adam and also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. So God look at, looked at Adam and Eve's fig aprons that they made, and he said, that's not going to cut it. That won't, that won't do. And God killed an animal to produce coats of skins that were sufficient to cover their shame, to cover them. I heard one person say that God is the first butcher in the Bible, and that's true, because here, God did the first slaughter for the sake of the covering of sin, and in the same way, this points forward to the day that Christ would die on the cross for our sins, so that He would take our filthy, sinful rags and give us his robes of righteousness. His robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. Robed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. So, God offers forgiveness to all who will turn and trust in him. And he offers a covering for our sin. If you belong to him, you don't have to be ashamed anymore. Your sin is forgiven. Now live in the power of that. And allow him to help you to get the victory over that. But just think of how much he did. He gave his son to die for you. He gave his son to die for me. So high the price he paid. The nails, the cross, the grave. Such pardon he bestowed, such grace he showed. No greater sacrifice, he gave his very life. So deep the love, so high the price. I'm so glad that he did that for me. He didn't just do it for me, he did it for you. So don't leave this morning if you're not sure if you're his. Don't leave this morning if you're not sure if your sins are forgiven. He died to save you. Why not let him save you? Why not come to him and trust him? And if you're here this morning and you say, I belong to Jesus, I, I, I have him in my life, I've, I've asked him to forgive me, I've placed my trust in him, but 
but it seems like I don't have hope. The sin is so much to fight or I have so many terrible things happening. Listen, there's hope. If there was hope on the worst day ever, there's hope today. There's hope for all of us who have placed our trust in him. Because if our hope is in him and he doesn't change, then our hope doesn't change from day to day. Our circumstances change all the time, but not him. Not him. Adam failed. He ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, and he plunged the whole human race into sin. But on Calvary, there was another Adam with another tree who made the worst day ever the best day ever. When he died on the cross to fix everything that was broken, to wash away our sin, to destroy death. And now he offers that to you. Trust him. Come to him. And if you already have, let's tell Port Austin, let's tell Michigan, let's tell the world about him. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for what you did on the cross. Thank you for this great message that no matter what we've done, where we've been, you still love us. And that you didn't just tell Adam and Eve, get out of the garden and see if I ever talk to you again, but that you loved them, that you covered their sin, and that you promised a redeemer to forgive and to undo what Satan had done. Lord, I don't know where everyone is this morning before you, but please work in our hearts. Give us a holy hatred of sin. Help us to hate it like you do and to love you with all of our hearts. And if anyone here today has not been forgiven, they've never had that time where they trusted you, I pray that today would be that day for them. Lord, may they not leave here. Don't give them rest till they trust Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.